Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. This devotional address, entitled Some Lessons on Faith and Fear, was given on May 6th of 2008 by Gregory Clark, then the Associate Dean of the BYU College of Humanities. I'm humbled by the opportunity to speak to you today, and I pray that what I have to say will be helpful to you and pleasing to the Lord. I approach this opportunity with some fear, fear that I might not get the doctrine quite right, fear that those of you who know me will will recognize the extent to which I don't practice what I'm going to preach, Fear that because I have more questions about these matters than answers, I won't have much to say that's useful. But I'll proceed upon faith, and that really is the point of my message today. I'm primarily a teacher of writing, and for me, this speaking assignment has been primarily a writing assignment. It isn't finished, but time ran out and I had to stop. That's the way it is for me with important writing assignments. It may be that the most important writing assignments are the ones we aren't able to finish. We aren't able to finish them because they engage us in a process of learning that doesn't have an end. I started this assignment with a plan for the finished project, but in the process of writing I learned things I hadn't anticipated, and now I'm going to say things that are not what I had initially planned. I had planned to say what I thought you needed to hear but I've ended up preparing to say today what turns out to be what I need to hear. And I think that's what good writing assignments do. They teach those who do the writing the things we need to learn. So I'll be talking to myself today. But I hope there's something in what I have to say that will be helpful to you. I've been learning about the relationship of faith and fear. I'm beginning to think that faith and fear, as much as good and evil, is the opposition that structures my experience in this life. Essentially, when I'm living in faith, I don't fear change or changing myself for the better. But when I'm living in fear, I find change and changing, for the better at least, almost impossible. It's important to learn how to live in faith rather than fear because the process of changing for the better is at the very foundation of the Father's plan for us. Changing for the better is what we are here in this life to do, and it's what the mission of His Son enables us to do. So I want to share with you today what I've been learning about faith and fear. The first lesson I've learned is that, at least in my life, fear works directly against faith. It pulls me away from the Lord. To understand why that is, I've been looking at the scriptures to learn more about faith and its relationship to fear and want to share with you what I've found there. But I've also learned a second lesson, one that's most important, how day-to-day, hour-to-hour, to go about the process of rejecting my fears and living my faith. I want to share that with you, too. I've learned while writing this talk something about how fear works against faith in my life. I've realized that fear weakens my faith more than I had recognized. When my faith is strong, I'm happy, confident, even energetic as I approach each day. 
I'm able to remain calm as difficulties arise, keep the relative importance of things in perspective, and feel when I need it most the guidance and the comfort of the Spirit. But then there are the times when I'm anxious about the problems I face and worried about what is coming next. Those are hard times, lonely times. I don't feel capable of handling what the day will bring. At times like that, I'm likely to choose badly, make small problems worse by my, my, by my reactions. I've learned that these are times of fear. I think fear works a little bit like a cold virus. Those viruses are all around us all the time. And fairly often I let one in and feel the early symptoms of a cold, a scratchy throat, a stuffy nose, a drop in energy, more generally some telltale grumpiness. I've learned to pay attention to those symptoms, to take some vitamin C, get some rest, and most of the time the symptoms passed without slowing me down very long. Sometimes, though, the virus pulls me down and into a bad cold. When that happens, I have to work on getting well until the cold runs its course. When I was younger, I tried not to ignore even the I tried to ignore even the worst colds and continued my usual activities. But then one of them developed into pneumonia. It took a lot of time in bed, a lot of penicillin, and about a year of my life to get my strength back. That's how I learned to take every cold seriously and to be on the lookout for the symptoms. Pneumonia can be life-threatening, you know. My experience with fear is like that. Fear is out there all the time, ready for me to let it in. I often find myself a little anxious, worried, a little discouraged and doubtful. I often have moments when I don't feel capable of solving my problems, of meeting my challenges, of overcoming my sorrows. Those are symptoms that need immediate attention. I've learned that as a result of a few extended bouts of, with fear, times when I was disabled spiritually and emotionally, as I was with pneumonia, fear too can be life-threatening. What is the source of fear? I think it's rooted in the assumption, one that comes all too easily to me if I'm not paying attention, that I must solve all my problems and face all my challenges alone, using my own resources. That's frightening, because deep in my heart I know how limited those resources are. So when I'm fearful, I'm also hopeless. And without hope, I'm paralyzed. Knowing that I'm not capable of, of capable of changing myself or my circumstances for the better, I'm frozen in fear. That fear is a failure of faith. So I've learned from this writing assignment to take very seriously the power of fear, to watch for its symptoms, and to do what I must to address them directly when they come. Fear has the power, coming on in little increments, no more disabling than a naggy cold, nagging cough or a stuffy nose, to accrue and eventually cancel out the faith that would enable me to move ahead, confident in the Lord's help that I can change myself and even some of the circumstances around me for the better. But I've also learned to take very seriously the power of faith to overcome and eliminate fear. I've been learning about that lately from the Book of Mormon. I've reread there some familiar and concise definitions of faith. First, this one from the prophet Moroni. 
I would show unto you the I would show unto the world that faith is things hoped for but not seen. Wherefore dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And the second one from Alma. Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. These are clear and explicit definitions, and they both imply an important principle, that faith is a choice. Specifically, faith is a choice to believe and then act upon that belief, and it's a choice to believe and act without the assurance that would follow from what Alma calls perfect knowledge. That is, faith is a choice to believe and act upon that belief in the face of uncertainty. But this last idea, that we choose faith in the, faith of un, in the face of uncertainty, prompts a question. At some special times in, in my life, the Spirit has witnessed to me that the restored gospel of Christ is true. Yet day to day, I find myself uncertain in the face of my challenges and difficulties and readily subject to doubt and to the fear that follows it. I have a testimony of the gospel, yet as I try day to day to live the gospel, I find myself having consciously to choose faith. Isn't that a contradiction? Having been given my own witness of truth, shouldn't I be beyond faith? Maybe I should be, but I'm not. Why is that? I think I've found an answer in a Bible story we all know. On a boat, in the dark, on a very stormy sea, Jesus is awakened by his frantic companions. Carest thou not that we perish? they ask. He calms the storm and then asks them in response, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Indeed, how is it? Before we try to examine that, let's examine a prior question. Why did they need faith? They had the Savior present with them in the boat. How could they possibly fear anything? I think they were fearful because at that moment, the only thing they had perfect knowledge of, as we know things in this life, was the intensity of the storm, the fragility of the boat, the depth of the water, and their distance from shore. At that moment, their mortal senses were filled with fear. They could see and hear and feel the threat of their circumstances. They had, in days prior, witnessed for themselves the Savior's power. He had promised them the Father's blessings. Yet their memories of his works and his words and their hope in the future reality of his promises were not at this moment nearly so real to them as that storm. This story helps me understand something important about faith. Faith is founded upon our divine memory excuse me, on our memory of divine witnesses and blessings received in the past, and our hope in divine promises for the future. Founded upon promises of the past and the future, our faith is or can be vulnerable when experiences in the present seem to contradict both. So even with knowledge of the truth— in the present moments of our day-to-day -day experience, we remain subject to fear and must choose again and again consciously to believe, to remember, to hope, to have faith.
Here's the problem. I know the gospel of the restoration is true, but I don't know what today, much less tomorrow, will bring to me and to those I love. I've felt directly the Lord's love for me, but I don't know how or when the seemingly impossible problems that occupy my thoughts and prayers will be resolved. I know the Lord has promised that he will take care of me and mine, but still, day to day, our lives often seem uncertain and painful. So I have learned that I must choose each day, and on some days each moment, to proceed on the basis of faith remembering the Lord's past blessings and believing and acting upon my hope in his promises. And I have to do that even when the evidence of present trouble is almost overwhelming. I have to remind myself each day to choose faith and to keep choosing faith in the face of realities that seem to contradict it for as long as it takes. And this is, I think, what Moroni means by a trial of faith. I have to remind myself constantly that this choice of faith will, sooner or later, result in answers to prayers and miracles in my life. Here's another more comprehensive definition of faith, this one from our Bible dictionary. Faith is to hope for things which are not seen but which are true and must be centered in Jesus Christ in order to produce salvation. To have faith is to have confidence in something or someone. The Lord has revealed himself and his perfect character, possessing in their fullness all the attributes of love, knowledge, justice, mercy, unchangeableness, power, and every other needful thing, so as to enable the mind of man to place confidence in him without reservation. This definition makes explicit something that is implicit in the briefer definitions of faith given to us by Alma and Moroni, that the object of our faith, that what we have faith in, is the capacity of the Savior's atonement to bless us, to heal us, and to enable us, in the term Elder Bednar used, to act beyond our abilities. As I have thought about this, I've begun to think that faith might well be the path the channel, that the power of of the atonement must travel if it is to transform our lives. It may be only in the moments when I am filled with faith, with my fears crowded out, that I make myself available to the healing and enabling power of the atonement. It may be only then that I can be comforted, restored, made able to overcome my problems, and to change for the better. Put another way, It is actions of faith to keep our covenants, actions chosen sometimes directly in the face of fear, that are those very transformations of our souls that the atonement promises. So the first lesson I've learned from this writing assignment includes these ideas about the relationship of faith and fear. The second lesson I have learned is how to put those actions of faith into daily practice, how to live each day in a way that draws constantly upon the blessings of the atonement to dispel fears and enable change for the better. I have learned while preparing this message something about how I can engage myself very actively in the ongoing process of choosing to live in that kind of faith. As I said a moment ago, I think faith might open a divine channel through which we receive the transformative blessings of the atonement. And I think the opposite occurs as well. Faith closes that channel. To put it bluntly, fear closes that channel. To put it bluntly, 
choosing fear, and fear like faith is also a choice, may well keep the blessings of the atonement from reaching us. For me, this life, for all its complexity, is beginning to boil down to the ongoing choice between faith and fear. We choose constantly between faith and the capacity of the atonement to bring us happiness and peace in the Lord's way and in his time, and fear that the trials of this world will put peace and happiness and progress and answers to our prayers out of our reach. I think both these statements are true, by the way. The atonement really does have the capacity to bring us happiness and peace and power to change. And without our constant choice to keep it active in our life, peace and happiness and positive change really are out of our reach. In a way, our situation is the same as that of the Savior's companions that night in the boat in the storm. We have in our experiences, in our scriptures, our doctrines, and particularly in our covenants, his promises of salvation in both this life and the next. But our problems, so insistently and empirically present to us in each moment, are almost always more real to us than those promises. If we choose that reality to live in, we choose fear over faith. So what can we do about that? What exactly does it take, day by day, hour by hour, to choose faith over fear? My youngest daughter and newest son-in-law are patiently therapeutic in their approach to my fearfulness. For my birthday last year, they copied in calligraphy a quote from President Hinckley and framed it for my office. It hangs above my desk. This is what it says. It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. <laughs> I read that every day, multiple times. These are the first three sentences of a statement President Hinckley included in his wife's funeral program that must have been one of the hardest of this good man's life. Here's the rest of it. Don't worry. I say that to myself every morning. It will all work out. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. The Lord will not forsake us. He will not forsake us. If we will put our trust in him, if we pray to him, if we live worthy of his blessings, he will hear our prayers. I think this is the answer to my question about how to go about the constant project of choosing faith. This is what faith looks like in daily practice. And if President Hinckley needed to remind himself daily to choose faith, to choose faith over fear, then I should probably be reminding myself regularly and even more often. President Hinckley wasn't the only prophet who needed a reminder to choose faith instead of fear. Moroni did. In Ether 12, he described himself fearful that he was not up to the Lord's assignment to write the gospel of Christ for his descendants. And he was right. He wasn't up to it, at least not on his own. So he confessed his fears to the Lord and received in response this lesson. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Could it be that when we find ourselves fearful, that is, when we find ourselves failing to choose faith, we should consider this a sign, a symptom even, of our urgent need to return to the Lord so he can strengthen our faith? I think it could. 
So how exactly do we return to him? The Lord's lesson to Moroni suggests that humility is the way. Let us look at it again. The first step in that turn to the Lord is to recognize that fear is a symptom of weakened faith. The second is to acknowledge this weakness and our need for the Lord to help us overcome it by renewing our trust in him. And as we begin to again to trust the Lord more than our own capacities, a trust we have lost at some point, we become humble. That's how it worked out for Moroni. He recognized in his fear a lack of trust in the Lord. What did he do? He took his fear to the Lord, precisely what we all should do with our fears. When he did that, the Lord comforted him, taught him, and empowered him beyond his capacity. Moroni exercised his faith, and that faith enabled him to write with marvelous clarity and power of the Lord's plan. Every time I find myself fearful, sooner or later I realize that I am not being particularly humble. I realize I have been trying to live my life and solve my problems on my own terms and with my own capacities, my own intellect usually, and have forgotten to trust instead the power and plan of the Lord. May I comment for a moment on the difficulty of humility. As President Benson taught us years ago, pride is a my will rather than a thy will approach to life. The opposite of pride is humbleness, meekness, submissiveness, or teachableness. Pride is reliance on our own judgment, our own capacities, our own purposes, unsubordinated to the Lord's. And may I suggest that a university, even this university, can, if we are not careful, nurture pride. That is because a purpose of a university, even this university, is to enable people to achieve impressive feats of learning and expertise. That's why we are here, students and faculty alike, and these are goals that can, if not managed with humility, bring us pride. Perhaps that is why so many of us here struggle with fear. As we increase in learning and skill, as we compete with and compare ourselves with others, we begin to rely on ourselves rather than on the Lord. But deep in our hearts, we know how limited we really are, so we work and live in fear. The point is, like fear, like faith and fear, humility is also a choice. It's an ongoing choice to be made every moment of every day, sometimes in spite of circumstances that persistently teach us pride. Because I need to be reminded to choose humility, I'm glad that our daughters gave Linda and me a particular Christmas gift a few years ago. We are empty nesters. Our three daughters are married, and so far none of them has chosen to live with us, <laughs> which is okay. In fact, only one of them lives anywhere near our time zone. So as the time approached for them to leave us, our two younger daughters gave us dogs. I read somewhere that departing adult children, I want to see what this looks like. Yeah. I read somewhere that departing adult children do such things out of concern for the parents they feel they are abandoning. They think their parents' lives will be empty and void without them, so they try to replace themselves with pets for their parents to care for. <laughs> may I suggest that this may be a misplaced concern? <laughs> anyway. Linda and I have come to love these dogs. Each morning and afternoon, they greet me with happy anticipation of a walk, so we walk. And as we walk, the dogs teach me lessons about humility. 
Tommy, the black and white one, stays with me, but Lucy, the yellow lab, is a wanderer. She frequently follows her nose off the trail on her own. Not that she wants to get away from me, it's just that when she finds an interesting scent, she forgets about me. Sometimes she comes back when I call, but at other times I have to go after her. When I catch up, she stops, wags her tail, and smiles at me. Dogs do smile, you know. Tommy, however, is entirely reliable. He walks with me, sometimes ahead, but always turning back to be sure he's with me. He always comes when I call. When I need him to stop, like when, when he comes to a busy road, I say, wait, and he waits. No matter how excited he is to proceed, only when I say, okay, does he rocket ahead with a joyful bark. I know people aren't and shouldn't be like dogs, so I'm not going to take this analogy very far. But I do learn from these dogs daily lessons in humility. Here's one. A trainer once told us that dogs are happiest when they understand clearly their relationship to their master. I think that we, too, are happiest when we understand clearly our relationship with our master, our savior, and give our hearts and will entirely to him. Here's another lesson. I should be like Tommy, staying close to my master at all times, learning his language, keeping him in sight, obeying his commandments without hesitation, always coming when called. Here's a third. I should be like Tommy, but I'm more like Lucy. I get distracted by my own agenda and follow my nose off the Lord's path. But when he comes to get me, I should respond to him as Lucy responds to me when I catch up to her. She's glad to see me, glad to turn and follow me. I should smile when I see him coming. So here's a summary of that second lesson I've learned from this writing assignment about how to go about choosing faith instead of fear. If I am humble, if I work constantly to choose attitudes and actions of humility before the Lord, then he will strengthen my faith and eliminate my fears. The healing and enabling power of the Savior's atonement, of his love, really, will become more real to me than the threats carried by any storm I might otherwise fear. I have learned, simply put, that active and practical humility is the way we choose faith. So what exactly do I need to do each day to be humble enough to fully choose faith? A few years after I began teaching here, President Eyring, then Elder Eyring, spoke to the faculty in this hall. And at the end of his remarks, he directed us to a scripture. It's a profoundly simple one that I hadn't noticed before, but has since remained very present in my mind. I think this scripture, in the words spoken by Mormon and recorded by Moroni, may say all that needs to be said about how to live in humility and choose faith. And the first fruits of repentance is baptism. And baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments and the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sin. And the remission of sins bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart, and because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love, which love endureth by diligence unto prayer until the end shall come, when all the saints shall dwell with God. I think that's the answer. That's how we stay humble and choose faith. It's a process we should practice throughout all our lives as regularly as the process of waking and sleeping. By choosing to live our lives within the context of this ongoing process of repentance and renewal, we keep our covenants. And through keeping our covenants, we change and are changed for the better. What about fear? Fear is the primary target of this renewal process.
And fear is the prompt to turn and return to the Lord in the process this scripture describes, a process that begins in an act of humility. In humility, we choose faith, and faith becomes the channel through which the Lord blesses us with hope and miracles and perfect love. So that's what I have learned about faith and fear. Maybe these lessons apply to some of you too. In faith, we are free of fear. In faith, we are blessed with peace that comes in the form of confidence that as bad things happen, as problems arise, as confusion confronts us, as people hurt or disappoint us, as people we love suffer, that in the midst of all the storms of this life, in the phrase our carillon bells remind us of every hour on the hour, all is well. I'm grateful for the peace and the confidence and the strength that follows when my faith refutes my fears. I'm grateful for the blessings of the atonement, which strengthen my faith when I turn and return in humility to the Lord. I pray that we may each be more humble and so choose greater faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.